This is The Craft of Governance, a podcast providing insight into the boardroom. Welcome, everyone, to the Director's Academy podcast series focused on the craft of governance, sponsored uh, by Allegis Partners. I'm Keith Meyer, the president and one of the founding uh, board members of the Academy. During the series of podcasts, we will invite a number of our faculty to share unique insights and perspectives on key elements of corporate governance and board leadership. Uh, We're very happy to have Billy Williamson with us today. Uh, The topic is audit committee leadership. Uh, Billy has a long, uh, distinguished uh, board member uh, history and an experience of over 30 years with Ernst & Young, now EY, where she led uh, major audit uh, uh, engagements for the firm. Uh, Billy was also the America's Inclusiveness Officer uh, while at EY. Most recently, she served on a number of both public and private boards, including Annie's, CSR, the recent Cushman and Wakefield IPO, Energy Future Holdings, Janice Capital, uh, Pintair, and XL Group. She's also a Director's Academy board member, and thank you for being with us, Billy. We thought we'd cover five areas today uh, related to audit committee leadership. Uh, number one, how do audit committees that work well work differently from those that tend to struggle? So what are the differentiators between the, the audit committees that work better than those that don't work as well? And that could be with management or just amongst the audit committee members themselves. <clears throat> the second topic is leading an audit committee and kind of your evolution from when you started your board service many years ago to today. How has audit committee leadership changed and how have you as an audit committee leader changed? What are some of the specific techniques or practices that helped you and your audit committee and the board uh, reach a higher level of performance? And then at the end, we'd like to look forward and talk about the future and discuss how audit committees may need to adapt and and evolve with the changing corporate governance landscape. But let's first start with some of the the factors, the key factors that drive audit committee performance and the overall success of an audit committee and share with, uh, with us your thoughts on that. That make an audit committee successful. First, um, the people on the audit committee need to be well prepared. They need need to be committed individuals that are willing to read all the materials, ask good questions, and thoroughly understand the materials they're being provided. Um, Secondly, I think it's very key to build great relationships between the audit committee and the members of management who are supporting the audit committee. So that may be your CFO, controller, head of internal audit. Those individuals are particularly important to the work of the audit committee, and I think it's important that the audit committee build a trusting relationship with those executives so that there's a lot of transparency um, in the, the information brought to the audit committee. Uh, I think that's particularly important. And, um, you know, the other thing that I think is very important for audit committees to do is to continue to stay abreast of current topics. For example, I'm a CPA, so I'm required to do 40 hours of training every year. But I do that in board-related matters, not just on accounting matters, so that um, I am up to date on what the hot topics are and what kinds of things we should be um, paying attention to as members of the audit committee. And um, then finally, I think it's very important that the chair of the audit committee be very organized uh, in getting the materials put together. So on my audit committees, we have a calendar throughout the year that identifies what's going to be covered at each meeting. 
And then uh, when I chair the committee, I work with manage the management team, you know, two weeks out to review materials, make sure the materials are informative but concise, and then um, talk with the team that's going to present so I know what they're going to be saying, and then hopefully resolve all that and get the materials out a week ahead of time. So being real organized and knowing what you want to cover is particularly important. And what about the interplay between the board chair and the audit chair during all this preparation process? How, how does that work? Oh, well, I think it's different for every um, board. Uh, on most boards, um, they pretty much are happy to delegate it to the uh, audit committee chair and have the audit committee chair make sure all the materials and everything are getting done. However, I do know that the CEO has reviewed the materials before they come to me. The CEO on most of my audit committees actually sits in the audit committee. Uh, sometimes the chairman of the board does in certain places, but in, it depends on the schedule because in many instances, uh, we have different committees running at the same time to conserve the time that is required for the board. Meeting. So physically not possible to be right. in all the committees. As you think about the um, evolution of audit committees, sort of say post-Enron, post-Sarbanes-Oxley, how has the audit committee chair role for you changed? And give us a kind of a picture of maybe the first audit committee chair role you had and kind of what it, what it looks like today and the differences between then and now. Let's go back to Sarbanes-Oxley because I was still a partner at Ernst & Young when uh, Sarbanes-Oxley came out and we had to actually do that for the first time. Uh, and just about everybody in the profession died because it took so <laughs> long to really accomplish that. And CEOs uh, had to sign their name. Oh, they did. CEOs and the audit CFOs partners had to be. <laughs> so we all had to be in there. And, you know, as experienced as I was at that point in time, I underestimated how long it was going to take to do that by orders of magnitude, like four or five times. So huge amounts of effort were put in at that time. But prior to that time, you know, as a partner, I would meet with audit committees uh, regularly. And there would be times when I would walk into an audit committee and people were just then taking their materials out of the package, you know. Now, subsequent to Sarbanes-Oxley, with the clear definition of responsibilities plus the you know the legal liability that a board member as well as an audit committee member has i don't find that at all so you I see think, better preparation absolutely. today than you did 10 years 15 years ago yes absolutely because i think everyone understands that they have a responsibility there are certain uh, responsibilities outlined in the uh, rules of both of the stock exchanges here in the u.s as well as uh, rules that are set out by the SEC and by the PCAOB. The PCAOB, as you know, can interview the chairman of the audit committee if they go in to review a company's financial. Does that happen very often? It What's does. your experience? Pretty much every every account or every major account, they do at least ask to speak with the audit committee. How has the time commitment changed in the last 10 oh, to 15 years? I think the time <laughs> commitment has gone up significantly because the audit committee is getting a lot more things that are coming to it. So in addition to reviewing the financial statements and making sure that all the financial information is appropriate, audit committees generally have the responsibility for enterprise risk, or at least the first cut at that. They have the responsibility for um, all the hotline calls, the ethics programs, a lot of the compliance programs are now coming into the audit committee. And so there's a lot of effort that is being done in that committee. And those committees, you know, generally take three to four 
hours of time because there's so much material that needs to be covered. So the agenda is broader for the committee. Mm -hmm. The preparation time is more intense. Um, how about the, the overall role of the audit committee relative to the other committees? Do you see the audit committee? This reflects in compensation sometimes for directors that it's just viewed as a place where if you're on that committee, you're going to be giving the, the board and the company more of your time and therefore you're going to be remunerated differently. Do you think that's something that's the trend that's going to continue and do you think that's appropriate? I do uh, tend to believe that the work of the audit committee is a little bit more extensive than the other committees. Although I will tell you, I think the compensation committee is catching is, up, uh, is catching up <laughs> because there's certainly a lot of um, issues that can come out of the compensation and, and some of the requirements to look at what kind of behavior uh, the incentive plans might drive and, and different things like that. So to be uber careful in how they structure uh, compensation programs. But I do think uh, the audit committee is a great way to learn the company. And so on all the boards that I've gone on, new uh, members to the board actually start on the audit committee. Even if they're not a financial expert, um, everyone coming onto a board should know how to read financial information and that sort of thing. So the audit committee is a great way to learn about the company, to learn the controls of the company, to understand the operations around the world, and, and that sort of thing. So I think it's a positive to sit on the audit committee. It does take a little bit more time. Um, but, you know, many of those issues now are also then going to the board. So things like cybersecurity or perhaps some um, of the work on mergers and acquisitions and that sort of thing, those are going now to the board uh, through the audit committee. Talk a little bit, if you could, about the differences, if there are any, between uh, governance structure and the audit committee's work, whether it's a private company closely held private company, PE port, private equity portfolio, uh, VC backed, you know, early stage public company or, uh, you know, a mature public company. How does the work of the audit committee and the leadership of the audit committee differ, if at all, across those governance structures? Well, many private companies really, I mean, a private company isn't required to have a board in essence. So I grew up in a family business and my dad, my mom, and my brother and I were on the uh, board, and we discussed everything there. Uh, you didn't have an audit committee. We did not, as a matter <laughs> of fact. And, you know, I think some uh, family businesses, as they become much larger, may add some external people in. I, I interviewed with one uh, family-owned company, a very large transportation company, uh, and they were wanting to put two or three independent people on the board. Now, we would have still been in the minority. Uh, it's not a board that I chose to go on, but um, certainly I think uh, family-owned businesses are beginning to think about having that governance structure. Then as you move uh, to a private company, maybe that's PE-backed, um, or is growing very rapidly that may consider an IPO, you'll find that those um, boards begin to put um, independent people on at least a year, 18 months, maybe two years before the IPO, because you kind of have to act like the public company before you are one. And um, I think that's important for people to understand that there are a lot more governance standards and governance requirements when you get into the public realm. And then as a new public company, you know, it's kind of like drinking from a fire hose because all of a sudden 
Um, You're so, going through that right now after an IPO, right? right so everything's absolutely. new. You're setting up everything. But we had a very good board set up before the IPO, and the committee structure was in place. Um, there are certain smaller companies that go public that end up changing out a lot of the leadership team of a company because the kind of people that can build a company from nothing to a pretty good size in a public arena may not be real good with dealing with Wall Street and analysts and that sort of thing, and they may not be the right people to take the company to the next step. It may require different skills. So in a company that's just gone public, you may be sitting there changing out some management team, uh, putting the committee structure in place, changing some of your systems, that sort of thing. So you want to have a pretty good handle on that as you go public. And then as, as a public company, kind of regardless of what your size is, you're still covered by all the rules and regulations and you need to figure out a great way to uh, accomplish all that. So you see the uh, evolution of an audit committee from a small, maybe public company uh, mode of operating to a mature public company as sort of an evolution. There's no dramatic changes in how the committee itself operates. Well, I mean, uh, the committee gets larger as you get bigger and there's more issues to deal with. Um, so I think that's one thing that changes. The length of your meetings go longer because there are tougher issues to deal with or more um, but as a leader, you would approach each of those situations almost in a similar way. In a similar way, because, right. I mean, you're still covered by the same requirements. Uh, yes, there is the, you know, the emerging growth company uh, criteria that you can use that's a little bit different than a, a full-blown, you know, SEC company. You don't have to put quite as many years in the financial information and that sort of thing. But... Um, for the most part, I think you really still have the responsibility to the public shareholders to properly represent them and to ensure that the financial information is solid. Have you ever had a situation where you were concerned that the resources in the company and the management of the company were not sufficient from a financial fiduciary standpoint for you as an audit committee member to be comfortable? Or have there always been enough resources, even in the smaller companies you've had a board seat on that you didn't have that concern because I could see that could be a concern sometimes if you didn't think you had the the infrastructure and the resources to actually deliver what the audit committee needed to see well I think that's one of the things one of the assessments that you have to make if you're going to go public is do you have the right skills and and that sort of thing I have not been placed in a situation where I felt we did not have the right kind of accounting uh, team that could get the information. Because that's a prerequisite for success, Absolutely. I would imagine. Well, the other thing is, you know, if, if I'm before the IPO, I'm advising the company on the fact that they need to act like an, I mean, an IPO'd company for about a year. So they need to be able to do three quarters and get those out in the time frame. As if they were public as already. As if they were public already. Put together their, quote, press release, their slides, and the stuff they're going to cover the 10K with analysts. Material. And be able to clock that off within the time frame without major adjustments or without major hiccups. So practicing that before you actually go public, I think, is pretty key. Let's look forward and think into the future. So we've talked about the past where we are today. Look out five, ten years, whatever your timeline would be. How would the work and the requirements for success of an audit committee, how do you think they'll change, if think, at all? Uh, I do. Well, I think, you know, we'll continue to have more and more complex transactions. 
So you need people that know how to think through complex transactions. I think you'll want a broader array of people on the audit committee. So in addition to people that have the strong financial knowledge, I do think uh, people like general counsels who understand those kinds of issues and a technologist. Mm. So as I think forward five years, and I can't even think 10 years, but I mean five years, we'll have all sorts of cryptocurrencies. We're going to have a lot of uh, money moving between banks and people and businesses just with my hitting my telephone or whatever and that's just gonna kind of go through cyberspace I think the criminals continue to get um, better and better so they're hacking in faster um, so I think you really have to have people that understand things like Bitcoin or Venmo or all these different kinds of things that are on the, the horizon. And what kind of controls should you have in place mm. to ensure that that is properly protected, that you're protecting the assets of the company? And so I do think it's going to be... Um, more technology oriented. The other thing that's going to be amazing is the use of robotics and AI now in the financial function. You know, we think about that in manufacturing, but now with um, you know the fact that the machines can learn and can um, anticipate uh, problems or data based on some of the things that they see, that's going to be particularly um, interesting. I went to a, a training class on robotics and. You know, it's pretty hard to understand at first pass. And so people are going to have to know how to understand that, how to say whether we have the right controls and whether we have the right people uh, taking care of that within a company. Yeah, you wonder in five years what the external audit firm workflow and relationship will be to the company and the audit committee if AI is embedded in to how the audit firm is also operating their side of the house, right? Well, that's exactly right. And you see the firms today really developing. It's starting to happen. Yeah, they're developing some phenomenal tools, um, which will make audits actually better, I think. Should be more thorough, more rigorous. That's correct. Uh, because they can go through massive quantities of data if they have it automated and look for particular issues. So it's, it's all in how you set up the algorithms. If A plus B, then we should see C. And... Um, you know, when you don't CC, something then that happens. comes out as an exception and somebody's got to go look at it and that sort of thing. So I think the firms are also looking now at robotics and AI. They've got um, large data, data analytics groups where people are uh, going through client data and coming up with trends or, or different issues like that. They can help a company in many ways by sorting that data and giving them, you know, criteria, sort by certain criteria so you know where your highest risks are. But it's going to take somebody who is able to really think um, in a, a much broader operational way. So, for example, um, let's take uh, Cushman and Wakefield as an example. We have different kinds of streams of revenue. And so it's working with the audit firm to make sure they understand what those different streams are like and then what, how the revenue should be recognized and you know, what risks are associated with that revenue. Do you think the, uh, the agenda of an audit committee is just getting too large and should there be some way to hive off certain topics into each, either a, a, an additional committee or the work of other committees? And, one thought would be organizational health and, 
you know, uh, whistleblowers and, uh, you know, Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, uh, you know, issues. Is it so big now where the Audit Committee's got an agenda that's bigger than the committee can handle? And if that's the case, you know, how do you resolve that issue? And it, is it just going to expand going forward with cyber and all these other issues that are flowing through? I think, uh, I don't think we've maxed out the audit committee yet, um, but what I do think we'll see is I think there are going to be certain uh, risks that are so large that they should be addressed at the full board level. So um, for example, in a technology company that has a lot of private personal information of people, um, something like cybersecurity probably should be at the full board level as opposed to just sitting in the audit committee. Um, so you can I, delegate up. You can, well, yeah, you can delegate some of the stuff up. But the other thing is, if you have strong programs, so the audit committee should be in a position of determining whether you have the right internal controls and the right processes in place. So when you mention things like uh, hotline calls or different issues like that, if you have a FCPA, if you have the right processes in place and we can ensure that those processes are functioning the way they it's should. It's not taking much time of the audit committee. No, because all you're doing is looking at the exceptions that come out, uh, verifying that you know that the system is working properly but then anything that's kicked out would be of an exception basis, not just thousands of transactions that you have to look at. Well, you've been able to make the audit committee sound really exciting, Billy. I so, like the audit committee. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. We can tell. Well, thank you for sharing all your thoughts with us today. We're going to be back in a couple of weeks to have our next Craft of Governance podcast. And again, thanks to Allegis Partners for their support of the Academy and our mission to advance diversity in the boardroom. To learn more about the Director's Academy, go to directorsacademy.com.